Book two, chapter eleven of The Mask by Florence Irwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In December, Phil received a note from the publishers who had brought out his Inca. They asked for an immediate interview. He went up to see them and came home tremendously excited. What do you suppose, Al? he said. They want to dramatize it. Who do? Wait, I'll tell you all about it. I'm so wrought up over it that I can hardly talk straight. Well, there's a California woman, a Mrs. Deverall, who has come to New York for the winter. She has all kinds of money, and has taken one of those huge palaces on Upper Fifth Avenue, ballroom and all that. I imagine she wants to pave her way into the Holy of Holies. Anyhow, she has made up her mind to give the most magnificent private entertainment that New York has ever seen and that's saying quite a bit. And she wants it to be different from anything that's ever been done before. She has always been mad about my Inca, and it occurred to her that it might be dramatized, adhering as closely as possible to my original words, you see, and copying the scenery absolutely from my descriptions. Jove, it's the chance of a lifetime. I can see it all now, in my mind's eye. He was walking rapidly up and down the room as he spoke, gesticulating violently. Alison had never seen him so excited. She noticed how much straighter he was holding himself, how much of his old stooping slouch had disappeared. The thought flashed into her mind that success was what was needed to make a man of him. He had had eight years of failure, for it was eight years since he wrote the later of his two big successes and nearly ten since he wrote the earlier one. And since then, the world had been down on him. When the world stays down on a man too long, he is apt to get down on himself. I am to go to see this Mrs. Deverall tomorrow, resumed Phil, at her house by appointment. Great Scott, Al, I can hardly wait. I don't wonder, dear, she said heartily. What time is your appointment? Four o'clock in the afternoon. My first stipulation, naturally, will be that I shall make the dramatization myself. No one else shall touch it. They can have a stage manager, of course. They'll have to. But I shall do the writing. My head is full of it now. I'm going into the study to sketch a synopsis. Just imagine that scene in the Sun Temple, will you? It shall simply blaze with gold and that one where the Inca goes up for his public examination when he is sixteen, the royal neophyte sleeping on the ground, surrounded by his less illustrious companions, then the feats of strength in which he bests them all, and his inauguration as Inca, the old men piercing his ears with the golden bodkin, fitting the sandals on his feet, and placing in his head those two rare feathers that were the insignia of royalty. He'll be all in scarlet and white and gold. Then the great body of the Inca nobility kneeling to him, one at a time, to show that he is received into their midst. Then come the songs and dances and public festivities. He was beside himself with enthusiasm. His words almost tripped over each other in their hasty outpouring. He hurried on. And that scene where the virgins of the sun are watching over the sacred fire, you know, if one of them were caught in an intrigue, she was buried alive. Her lover was strangled, and his town was razed to the ground. Sewed with stones, they called it. 
but all the virgins of the sun were brides of the inca if he wanted them his palaces held not hundreds but thousands for his own personal pleasure well you remember this girl of mine succeeds in keeping her intrigue with her lover a secret but she adores him then along comes the inca and finds her desirable and of course she has no choice but to go with him and be shut up in one of his palaces and then when he dies she is one of the four thousand favorite concubines picked out to be immolated on his tomb and the task of her particular immolation is entrusted to the lover whom she still adores and who adores her oh it's simply immense run and get me prescott's conquest of peru al and bring it into the study the first volume and that histoire de Peron of balboa's and there's an english translation there somewhere of a history of fernandez in it i think you'll find some manuscript notes of mine look them over won't you and sort out all those pages where you see the name of huaynacapac he's my man the last of the incas by gad if this doesn't turn out to be the most beautiful thing that has ever been seen in new york it won't be my fault when phil returned next evening from his interview with mrs deverall he was more excited than ever that ballroom was going to prove a wonderful place for the production expense meant nothing whatever to the rich californian she rolled in wealth just at this point the narrator pulled himself up short i'll give you three guesses what my own particular fee for this thing is to be he said oh i couldn't guess replied his wife i shouldn't have an idea what to say what is it no no i want you to guess remember i myself write the drama from my own poem i make all the suggestions for the setting i give up the greater part of my very valuable time from now to the date of production about the middle of february mrs deverall in speaking of the time that i should have to devote to it and of my literary reputation herself brought up the subject of my compensation i had no more idea what to demand than you have guess what i asked and got oh phil i don't know two hundred dollars her husband regarded her with a smile of compassion five thousand he said five thousand dollars phillips howland you didn't i certainly did and i believe i could have asked even more you see al it's like this a man's private finances are his own concern money is not necessarily the measure of success but in the eyes of the world it is always taken to be if people think you have a lot they call you successful if you are successful they're all eager to help make you more so but if you are a failure they'll have nothing to do with you very well then i'm either a success or a failure in the first case i'm desirable in the second case i'm not the determining factor is whether or not i'm making money and that i alone can tell if i'm making money every minute of my time is valuable anyone who wants it must pay well for it to let it go cheaply would be to acknowledge that it was worth little i looked around that establishment and realized that money meant nothing to its owner it evidently flowed like water my hostess was decked even in the afternoon and in her own house with pearls and emeralds that must have been worth a king's ransom she would spend twice five thousand dollars on a new motor without a second thought 
though she probably has a dozen of them already. The moment I named my price, I did it as calmly as I could. I saw that I had made no mistake, and I'm going to earn it. From her standpoint, the thing will be well worth it. I see, said Alison. Well, it is certainly wonderful. The marvel to me is that you never before thought of dramatizing the thing yourself. The expense, and finding someone to produce it. Then, too, it's too short for a Broadway drama. It's just a brilliant, horribly costly morceau. And here is everything made to order. Mrs. Deverall wants a piece that won't take much over an hour to give, and she wants it dazzlingly beautiful. The expense doesn't count. I couldn't possibly have struck a softer snap. Here's my producer seeking me. Here's a purse that has no bottom, one that precludes all necessity of makeshift. Here will be an audience that will seek to be amused for just about the length of time that it will take to give my piece. And I, personally, assume no risks. I am insured against loss, and assured of a good fat profit. It's wonderful. Then he fell to telling his wife of some of the details. The music was to be principally chants, temple music, and dances, old Peruvian, not too savage, weird, rather, and plaintive. Mrs. Deverall was to consult musicians about composition, orchestration, and singers. It will probably be composed specially for the occasion. I told her to be particularly careful about the music that accompanies the wail of the vestals of the sun, when the sacred fire is found to be extinguished. That, you know, always foreboded imminent disaster. In my piece it immediately precedes the death of the Inca. Oh, cried Alison excitedly, that should all be on strings, and one muffled drum like a tom-tom. The accompaniment should be in minor chords, and the wail should be written in descending chromatic passages, like those concluding bars in Sansen's Samson et Dalila. From that day on, the Inca was almost the daily meat and drink of the Howlands. Phil was scarcely at home except in the mornings. His afternoons and evenings were full of consultations and rehearsals. He frequently rushed home at dusk just to jump into evening clothes and hurry out again for dinner. He had less compunction about leaving his wife than he would have had if she had been alone in the house. Lena, however, while she lessened the solitude, was scarcely a companion for her mistress. When Phil was at home, he talked Inca continuously. Although Alison was frequently consulted, it never crossed his mind that she might be personally interested in the business meetings or rehearsals. And as to the great representation itself, that was naturally for Mrs. Deverall's friends and acquaintances. Even had Alison been invited, her mourning would have precluded acceptance. Phil did some rather surprising things. For instance, he went to an expensive Fifth Avenue tailor and ordered a lot of new clothes. This was explained to Alison very sensibly. The dress standards of the people he was now meeting so constantly were quite different from those of the friends with whom he had formerly consorted. To be prosperous, one must look prosperous. And, of course, he could afford now to dress better. There was one thing his wife could hardly fail to notice constantly, and that was how greatly he was improved by prosperity. But though his finer self was now dominant, his character still showed lack of basic strength. 
His moods always were the reflex of the opinions of others. He could be cast into savage depths by animadversion, and lifted to heights of pleasure by praise. And just at present he was breathing the incense of constant adulation. Seeing all this, Alison realized that in order to achieve his possible best he must always be made to believe in himself. At first this seemed strange to her. She herself cared little for the approval of outsiders. Only when coming from those she loved did praise affect her. Obstacles to her were things to be overcome. Place one in her way, and she would immediately begin to work the harder in order to get over it. Place one in Phil's way, and he would swear and lie down on the near side of it. But natures differ. The way to help a man is to understand him and every new day helped Alison Howland to a better understanding of her husband. The great affair was to take place on the 10th of February. Alison realized that she would see little or nothing of her husband until it was over. On the morning of the 11th he was full of it. It had been completely successful. Long columns with scare headlines were on the front pages of all the morning papers. Phil bought a copy of every one of them. His name appeared repeatedly, and always accompanied by flattering compliments. He was called the famous author Phillips Howland, and many were the prophecies of his future brilliant career as a dramatist. Phil devoured them all and longed for more. Fame is another thing for which the appetite comes in eating. Now that it was all over, Alison looked forward to having her husband settle down at home with her, and she hoped to work. She wanted him to continue to produce successes and not simply to live on past ones, but not at all. Phil was in the house as little as ever. She scarcely saw him. One day she asked him where he spent all his time and when he intended to get back to work. To her surprise he hesitated quite a bit, and then said that Mrs. Deverall was purchasing a number of tapestries and pictures and wanted his advice about them. Some two weeks after the Inca affair, Alison received a note from Kathleen Mortimer, begging her to come to luncheon. Mrs. Mortimer was on the eve of going south. Her departure had been delayed because Billy had hurt an eye at squash, and semi-weekly visits to a big oculist had been necessitated by the accident. But now all was well, and they would soon be off. Alison and her hostess were alone at luncheon. I hoped I might see you at that wonderful affair at Mrs. Deverall's, said Mrs. Mortimer. Alison indicated her black gown. Yes, I know, but I thought you might just come for the show and hurry off before the dancing. Your husband was so tremendously in evidence. How remarkably well he looks. I scarcely knew him. He had been desperately ill not long before you first met him, replied Alison. And he hadn't really recovered. He does look well, and he was so interested over that production at Mrs. Deverall's. It must have been exquisite. It was. I have never seen anything so beautiful. The scenes were really gorgeous. You know Mrs. Deverall, then? asked Alison idly. Well, yes, I know her, though she would have asked me just the same if I didn't. She's dynamiting her way into society, you know, and she has the price to do it and, I should say, the temperament, rather impervious to snubs, and we are all such savages that we permit her to entertain us gorgeously, 
and then if we don't feel like seeing her again we never go near her but that's her own lookout she's making a bid for the entree to our houses and we're simply looking her over what she has to offer in order to decide whether or not we think it's worth while disgusting isn't it rather nodded alison it is pretty far from the arab courtesy between host and guest isn't it isn't it it's really horribly ill-bred but one drifts into it gradually and really alison the bids for our favor are so blatant and so crude that we are warranted in giving an occasional snub here we are a coterie of people who know each other intimately along comes an outsider and tries to jump straight into our laps we brush her off as we might brush an over-eager lapdog that was making itself offensive yes of course that's all right you don't have to make friends unless you want to but to go you surely don't have to do that no of course not but by going we repay a woman like mrs deverall would barter her soul just to get us beneath her roof to let others see us there and then to announce the happy fact in print to those countless thousands who haven't the chance to know it otherwise our mere presence is her reward and as for our side of it we simply go to be amused alison shook her head with a smile it didn't sound very convincing to her for my own part continued her pretty hostess i shall probably take some more decent means of discharging my social debt to mrs deverall i've been let out of it so far by the fact that billy hurt his eye the very day after her party and now i'm flying off when i come back she may be established and even if she isn't she has plenty of time ahead of her she's young yet she is cried alison why how strange i imagined her a gray-haired woman you did replied mrs mortimer no you were quite wrong she is a widow of not more than thirty and some people think very stunning-looking personally i hate her style alison couldn't tell just why this speech gave her a vague feeling of discomfort but it did it kept popping up in the back of her mind all the time that she was talking of other things when she rose to go her cousin insisted on driving her home and as it was still early they went first for a spin in the park just as they were emerging on their way downtown they passed a very beautiful car at the park entrance there's mrs deverall now whispered mrs mortimer hurriedly all that alison could see was a gorgeously dressed woman with dark hair and eyes not quite all either she saw her own husband seated by mrs deverall's side it wasn't a very remarkable sight and yet it startled her for the balance of the drive she made conversation with her lips and occupied her mind with her new bit of knowledge at her own door good-byes were exchanged and mrs mortimer drove off she was starting south in three days and wouldn't return for a month or so and now alison had a new subject for thought one to which she devoted much time during the ensuing solitary weeks she wasn't a suspicious woman and she wasn't a jealous one but she was just and she had a very distinct sense of the meaning of the words mine and thine probably not a wife in the world in alison's place would have failed to suspect that all was not well one april day phil went out about noon 
very much dressed and announcing that he would not be home till night after his departure alison went to his study to look for a book on the floor by his desk lay a crumpled sheet of grey notepaper face up and open it had evidently been stuffed into a pocket from which it had dropped had it been in an envelope alison would never have dreamed of taking it out nor would she have stooped to looking through a drawer or a pocket in search of a missive but her eye involuntarily swept this open note it began without preamble thus come to me tonight dear straight up to my boudoir and the signature was lillian that was all but it was quite enough alison stood for a moment struck dumb and then she knew exactly what she was going to do she didn't come to a decision because there was no question she simply knew beyond all doubt that there was only one course that she could possibly take there was no alternative she was going home to coningsboro with her departure her husband's entire income ceased she didn't care he had his money from the inca but even if he hadn't had a cent in the world it would have been just the same she was going home to coningsboro it didn't take her long to pack her trunks because she made no attempt to take anything except her clothes when she had nearly finished she sent lena out for an expressman she knew that there was a four o'clock train to coningsboro and she was going to catch it on lena's return her mistress told her that she might take the afternoon for a holiday i'll give you your next week's wages said alison opening her purse and you can have the day off lena overcome with gratitude flew around setting things straight inside of fifteen minutes she had left the house alison put on her hat then took the letter which she had found and smoothed the creases from it she pinned it against the frame of the mirror on her husband's chiffonier he could hardly fail to see it the moment he entered the room it was the only message she left not a line did she write in explanation the expressman had barely departed with her trunks when another ring announced the carriage which she had ordered it was early but she felt that she would rather go and wait at the ferry house arrived there she had forty minutes to spare even after buying her ticket and checking her trunks she decided to cross on the first boat and to wait on the other side of the river during all this time she had never once let herself think she had simply acted her thinking could be done on the train there would be ample time she considered telegraphing her mother that she was coming but decided against it telegrams were rare at st mary's rectory and their receipt was always attended with nervousness if alison walked in upon them alive and well her parents could hardly be worried about her she heard the noises that announced the arrival of a boat and following the crowd she boarded it when she was once on she began to shiver it was the first time she had seen the river or a ferry-boat since that homecoming last october the deck of course was impossible she took a seat in the cabin and sat with clenched hands and sick heart arrived at the terminal she found that the gate to her train would not open for nearly half an hour she did not buy a paper she did not sit down she simply walked up and down the long concourse her travelling bag in her hand it was heavy but she scarcely noticed it at last she saw the crowd surging in the direction of her gate and she turned and joined it 
She had just reached the wicket, just held out her ticket to the gateman, when she felt a hand on her shoulder. Turning, she faced her husband. Come home, he said. She shook her head and averted her eyes. Come home, I say, he repeated. I am going to Coningsboro, she told him. You are not. You are coming with me. She never could understand why, but she turned and followed him a little way, just enough to be apart from the crowd. Alison, he said, I have been a fool, but you have been a worse one and I got here just in time to prevent your making the biggest blunder of your life. She didn't say a word. She simply stood and looked at him. Listen to me, and he held her with his eyes. I am not going to talk until we are home, but I swear to you on my honor that you have no cause to leave me. I have done nothing to warrant it. On your honor? On my honor. For a second she hesitated. Then she turned and handed him her bag. Very well, she said. I will come back with you. Just as they got to the boat slip, she paused. My trunks, she exclaimed. Then she told him about them. Never mind, he replied. I'll telegraph the Coningsboro agent that it was a mistake, and tell him to hold them. Then I'll mail him your checks and have him express the trunks C.O.D. Come on, the boat is in. During the whole of the return trip they scarcely spoke. Once arrived in their own home, Phil opened his lips. Now, he said, I'll tell you everything. I've been an ass, but nothing worse. Sit down and listen to me. The recital ended. Alison realized that her husband had spoken truly. She had, indeed, been on the edge of making the most appalling mistake of her life. Mrs. Deverall, it appeared, was the sort of woman who must always be seen with a man dangling after her. Having no husband, it behooved her to find another cavalier, possibly permanent, possibly temporary. She had not an idea that Phillips Howland was married. At this his wife stared. Never knew you were married? she repeated. No, replied Phil naively. She never asked me, and I never told her. At first, you see, there was no question of anything personal. We just talked drama. And then one day she called me dear and put her hand on mine. And after that she generally called me something like that. He grinned as he said it. And what did you call her? Asked Alison curiously. I didn't call her anything. I swear to you, Al, that all the advances came from her. And she never got very far at that. He proceeded with the utmost frankness to tell her all the details of the friendship. Mrs. Deverall had taken to receiving him in her boudoir for tea, apparently because she had a number of beautiful negligees which she could wear nowhere else. The meetings had been scarcely more intimate than they would have been in one of the drawing-rooms. The singular detachment with which he related everything convinced Alison that he was speaking the truth. She knew in her heart what cold comfort Mrs. Deverall must have had in her one-sided love-making. In sooth, Alison remembered that her own courtship by Phil had been conducted along strikingly original lines. He was not a man of endearments. You see, said Phil, she was new in New York, and I think she imagined that I was much more important than I am. Whenever she saw me, they were all asking my opinion and hanging on my words and throwing me bouquets. They were doing it because of her money. 
and then she did it because they did it and among them i was quite a grand mogul and of course she thought that was my usual line then when the papers came out with all that stuff about me she was sure she had a prize what was your engagement with her today oh at half-past twelve we were to look at a sundial and some urns and marble benches all for a sunken garden in her new country place then we were to lunch at sherry's and i simply loved that room there and after luncheon she wanted me to motor out to the country place with her to suggest the proper setting for the dial and things but do you know al it was the strangest thing all the time we were at luncheon i kept thinking of you his wife smiled covertly at this remarkable admission and he continued i couldn't get you out of my mind we finished luncheon about three and i said i must go home she insisted on my keeping to the original plan so at last i gave in there was a little delay before the motor came then we got in and started uptown we hadn't gone five minutes when i said to her look here i have to go back and that's all there is to it she was awfully stiff and edgy but i made her have the chauffeur turn that car around and drive me back home she dropped me there and the minute i got in i saw the letter and then i found your clothes were gone of course there was only one possible place for you to go i never even looked to see if there was a train i jumped into a motor and told the man to drive like hell to the ferry and i just caught you it all became clearer and clearer to alison phil had been courted and flattered and petted and he had loved it but only for its own sake he had cared nothing for the courtier and the flatterer and the petter he had adored the atmosphere of luxury and the evidences of wealth she well remembered how he had basked in them at kenneth rawles he was a natural sybarite that was all perfectly easy to understand then too he had loved buying tapestries and pictures and art treasures with the dealers all cringing and bowing and mrs deverall constantly appealing to his taste and he had loved the advertisement of it all and the feeling that it was pushing him towards ultimate fame mrs deverall on her side was a woman who must always have a man about and having him wanted him to make love to her not knowing that phil was married she had a perfect right to try to beguile him if she wanted to and she might even have hoped vaguely that she would one day be the wife of the famous author her own name meant nothing whatever in new york well it was all entirely plain and comprehensible and in addition to her relief there were three things that gave alison howland distinct pleasure one was that for the first time in their rather tumultuous married life she knew that her husband had been right and that she had been wrong another was that he had wanted her back in a hurry and the third was that she had been forced to yield to his will-power never before had she been actually dominated by her husband never before had her will been conquered by his will and she liked the sensation end of book two chapter eleven